example. You can turn with me your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 33. I've tried to correspond with what John says in the prologue to Old Testament passages he alludes to. Although tonight, uh, really, the allusion comes from John 1.14 and 1.18. So in reality, uh, chapters 33 and 34 uh, are fulfilled in Christ uh, when we see that they beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. So uh, Exodus 33 and 34 uh, will be what we focus on this week and then in two weeks' time. Uh, so today we'll see the face of God uh, in chapter 33. So I'll begin reading at verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it. And I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And when the people heard this bad news, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. I could come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now therefore take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do to you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. Moses took his tent, pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the Tabernacle of Meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the Tabernacle of Meeting, which was outside the camp. So it was, whenever Moses went out to the Tabernacle, that all the people rose, and each man stood at his tent and watched Moses until he had gone into the Tabernacle. And it came to pass, when Moses entered the Tabernacle, that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the Tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. All the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshipped, each man in his tent door. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. He would return to the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you, and, and that I may find grace in your sight, and consider that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And he said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live." And the Lord said, Here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you, sh you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Amen. Let us pray. 
Our gracious God, we are thankful for your dwelling and tabernacling among your people. And we're thankful for that favorable presence. We know that sin severs that presence. We know that sin severs us from your glory. And we know that we have fallen short of your glory. But we're thankful for Christ, who is the propitiation, who is the sacrifice for his people, that we can dwell with you, that we can approach you, and we can approach you through Christ our Lord and Christ our High Priest. It truly is a blessing to be called the children of God. It is a blessing to be adopted as sons of the true and living God. And we know it is not based upon anything that we have done, but we know it's based upon your sovereign plan and the outworking of it. We're thankful that you have compassion on whom you have compassion, you have mercy and show mercy to those whom you will show mercy. And we're thankful that you have shown us mercy. We're thankful that you've been compassionate towards us. We know that we were once a stiff-necked people, and we still struggle with rebellion. We still struggle with remaining corruption. And so as we consider your Old Testament people and their wicked ways, uh, may it show forth what we deserve, but may we, uh, when we consider what we deserve, may we magnify your name all the more. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your compassion. Thank you for your infinite love, and thank you for the ways in which you, you reveal yourself to us, and thank you that that is in Christ Jesus and in your word. And we do long for that beatific vision. We long to see Christ as he is and long to be blessed fully when we see Christ as he is, as we dwell with you forever through the Lord Jesus Christ and by your spirit. And so we ask and pray even today would be a day that is a glimpse and foretaste for your people, that you would strengthen your people, give aid to your people, help your people. And we ask and pray if there are any here today who do not know you, please save their souls. Please show them that a life without God is a life uh, of everlasting punishment, everlasting torment, everlasting pain. But there is forgiveness in Christ and that there is mercy and life and hope and peace in him. So we ask you to give us your spirit, help us by your spirit to understand what your word says, uh, and really just to make sure we don't say things we ought not to concerning who you are. So be with us now by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, Calvin said that our hearts are like idol factories, and perhaps uh, one of the greatest demonstrations of man's wickedness, man's idolatry, is the golden calf incident, which we see in Exodus chapter 32. Israel loved their idols. Israel loved themselves. Israel didn't know where Moses was, so they decided to worship a golden calf instead. And we see one of the most egregious instances. God has brought them up out of the land of Egypt. God has brought them into the wilderness. God has appeared before them. And then what happens when Moses is gone just for a little bit of time, they decide to dance around a golden calf. They commit adultery on their wedding night. And so we see it's very egregious. It's a challenge to the presence of God. It's a challenge to the worship of God. And God brought them up out of the uh, land of Egypt for a specific purpose, namely that he might dwell with him, uh, with them and they with him. Because the main purpose of the book of the Exodus is not the Exodus. It's what the Exodus brings. The main purpose of the book of Exodus is dwelling. That's why we see in Exodus 40, Exodus 12 is the actual Exodus, but Exodus 40 is where we see the cloud descending upon the tabernacle as, the, as Yahweh dwells with his people. And so we can divide Exodus in three ways. Davis does this. I stole it from him. I'm giving him credit, so I'm not plagiarizing. Uh, but three Ds. We see deliverance, demand, and 
dwelling. And we're in that section that focuses in on dwelling. God has delivered, God has demanded, and now beginning at Exodus 25, we see how God will dwell with his people. He prepares to dwell with his people. But there is a problem. The people are stiff-necked. The people are rebellious. The people have severed themselves uh, from the good and favorable presence of God. Yahweh is preparing the plans of the tabernacle, and they decide to worship a golden calf instead. It's a picture of man's predicament. It's a picture of man's wickedness and just how truly wicked and desperately wicked man is. And the result is this unfavorable presence of the Lord, this cutting off from blessing, this being cutting off from Yahweh as they have to set up the tent. Moses sets up the tent of meeting outside the camp, outside of the people of God. And Israel in Exodus 24 just said, we'll do all that you say. We will do all that you say. And remember, this is the old covenant, and so it is a covenant of works concerning life in the land. Uh, but we see Israel violates it right away, and we see many instances of God's goodness and grace to renew that covenant with them. And one question that we have to ask as we consider their wickedness, can man really dwell with God based on merit, or does there need to be grace? Does there need to be sacrifice? Does there need to be something uh, that bridges that gap, that uh, gap between God and man? And so in Exodus 33, Moses shows us how a stiff-necked people can dwell with a holy God. How is it a stiff-necked people can dwell with the holy God? It has nothing to do with you and I. It has nothing to do with the stiff-necked people. It has everything to do with the goodness of God, who will have mercy on whom he will have mercy and have compassion on whom he will have compassion. So we'll look at this dwelling, this face of God, the presence of God under two headings this, uh, this evening. First of all, we'll see the predicament of the people in verses 1 through 11. And secondly, we'll see the presence of the Lord in verses 12 through 23. So the predicament of the people and the presence of the Lord. So let's first look at the predicament of the people in verses 1 through 11. Uh, and predicament doesn't really describe it. I just needed another P. Sometimes the juices just aren't flowing. and I just wanted presence and predicament. So predicament does describe the situation that they are in. And again, the context is the golden calf. What happens in Exodus 25 is Yahweh begins to set up the blueprints of the tabernacle, all the pieces, all the furniture, what the tent would look like. God would dwell with them. Uh, but then we come to Exodus 32. And Moses has been away for a while. Moses has been gone for a while. And so the people are like, we don't know where he is. What are we going to do now? Where's our God? Let's take all these, the gold that we have, and let's make this golden calf. Can you imagine if that happened today with cell phones? I mean, we all freak out when we, our, our loved one doesn't pick up their phone right away, right when we called them. When I was growing up, we didn't have cell phones, right? And so we would go off and play, and then we'd come home, and parents didn't weren't worried at all. Now, if someone doesn't pick up in two minutes or respond in five minutes, we lose our minds. And so the people have lost their minds. The people are concerned. Where'd Moses go? I don't know. He must be gone. So let's uh, make this gold, golden calf instead. And so really what's happening, though, is this, it is a rejection of Yahweh. It's a rejection of worship. Worship is in view here. Uh, Kaiser says, this section only contrasts the divinely appointed worship established in connection with the tabernacle with humanly devised worship that adores the work of human hands and leads to debauchery. That's what happens. God is making his temple. 
God is, sorry, God is making his tabernacle, the place of his dwelling. The tabernacle is a foreshadowing, a type uh, of that temple. Uh, but we see that instead the people wanted to do it their own way. Here are the specifications of Yahweh's house and what it would look like. And the people rather want to worship their own uh, works of their own hands. Kaiser goes on to say the sheer amount of text devoted to the topic of worship ought to demonstrate its importance. I mean, 25 through 40, 15 chapters are all about dwelling. It is actually the largest, uh, it's not the largest section, sorry, but it takes up a large chunk and it goes to the end, drives to the end of the book of Exodus. So Moses then intercedes. Uh, we see the Levites uh, have zeal for holiness. They kill 3,000. Uh, we see the sins of the people in 32:33, And the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Now, therefore, go lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. Moses says, perhaps I can then go up to the Lord and I can make atonement. And so Moses is going to go up to the Lord. He's going to make atonement and try to make atonement. He's going to be that mediator to plead on behalf of the people. And the basis for his pleading is the salvation of God, is the goodness of God, what he has done for them. It's based upon uh, the Abrahamic promises. And so we do see, though, before we get further into that mediation in verses 12 and following, but in ch chapter 33, verse 1, we see there's going to be no presence in Canaan. God is threatening to withdraw his presence entirely. If the people have sinned, the people have been stiff-necked, God, God is saying, I will fulfill my promise to Abraham, but I'm not going to go with you. We see that in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt. I mean, before it says Yahweh was the one who brought them up out of the land of Egypt. Now God is saying, you, Moses, you brought, they are your people. They are a stiff-necked people. They have violated the old covenant. The problem seems to be mitigated, but there's still some issues. How is it that this holy God can dwell with a stiff-necked people? This covenant renewal that we see in 34 is going to be different, or it should be different. But God is still saying, I will fulfill my promise. So you brought them up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. This comes from the book of Genesis. God has fulfilled one portion of that. Remember, with respect to Abraham, God said, I will give you seed and I will give you land. Well, the book of Exodus starts with God giving them a multitude, a temporal seed. But they still need that temporal land, which is what we see in the book of Joshua. But we see that at this point, Yahweh is threatening because of the wickedness of the people. I will, uh, will fulfill that promise, but I will not go with you. I will not go up to that land. He says, I will send my angel... Not the same angel as 2320. The angel in 2320 seems to indicate uh, that it is God himself. We say, I behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Uh, his name, I will put his name. Uh, he shall be, uh, my name is in him. So even too, we see the angel in Judges. The angel seems to be Yahweh who appears to his people in this way. But the angel in Exodus 33 is just a created angel. And the reason that it is, is certainly because of what we see in chapter 33, verse 12. Moses said, who is it that's going to go with us? Who is going to take us up 
And Moses is going to plead that Yahweh, it needs to be you who walks with us, not just a created angel, but we need you to be the one who walks with us, who will go with us. And so Yahweh then says, I will drive them out. I will drive out the Canaanite and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite uh, and the Hivite and the Jebusite. So driving out the Canaanites, this is fulfilling that Abrahamic promise, go up to that land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. What's the point of the land if Yahweh won't dwell with God? It's going to be no different uh, than the fall. Adam dwelt with God. Adam was with God. It was paradise. But what happened? Sin severed that paradise. Sin severed that communion with God. So what's the point if they have a land flowing with milk and honey if God is not there? And certainly Moses is going to plead based upon this, based upon the character of God, the good character of God. But we see the wicked character of the people. They have always been a stiff-necked people. They've always been a rebellious people. They have been like that donkey or like that ox that just won't turn. They will not listen. The God, the, all of man has been a stiff-necked people. And the people of Israel continue to be a stiff-necked people, so much so that in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen calls the people of Israel a stiff-necked people, he is alluding back to the golden calf situation and the golden calf scenario. And what Stephen is trying to point out there is you wicked people, Stephen actually never holds out here's salvation. It's judgment. It's judgment upon the people. They weren't necessarily worshiping a golden calf in Acts chapter 7, but they were worshiping the temple, a physical temple, a physical building, rather than the one true temple. They didn't realize that the one that the law and the prophets point to has come. They didn't realize that the temple that is a type of Christ and Christ has come. They didn't realize that. And so what happens is they have always been a stiff-necked people. Now, in Stephen's day, what happens? They gnash their teeth and they kill him. Thankfully, this first generation actually demonstrates some sort of repentance. So verse 4, and when the people heard this bad news, it is bad news, you're wicked, you're stiff-necked, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. So no ornaments. Remember, they got, got a lot of good stuff when they came out of the land of Egypt in Exodus 12. They plundered the people because they found favor with the Egyptians. They gave them gold and good things. And, and then they had their ornaments on when they were doing their golden dance. And so let's remove those remnants. If they've been on, uh, we see in verse 6, they strip off their ornaments. But if they have not put them on, do not put them on. It's not a time to party. It's not a time to have a dance. It is a time of sorrow. It's a time of sackcloth and ashes. And so the Lord says to them, say to the children, again, it is repeated, you are a stiff-necked people. And it's also repeated this idea that God will not be with them. I could come up into your midst in one moment and consume you because God is a consuming fire. Now, therefore, take off your ornaments that I may know what to do to you. So the children of Israel strip themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. They are fearful of him in Exodus 19 with that, with the, the, him, that theophany as he appears in the thunder and the lightning. Uh, they are repentant here, even though they just did something very terrible. Uh, but God uh, is highlighting that they, it's not a time to dance, but it's a time of mourning, a time 
of sackcloth and ashes, although that's not necessarily said in the text, but that is the implication. That is uh, kind of the idea of what is going on. And it is because they're stiff-necked, and the, re and the result of their stiff-neckedness, as I've heard someone say, someone say, uh, is that they are not going to be, God is not going to dwell with them. That's the result. God is not going to dwell with them. So there's going to be no presence. God is not going to be with them. There's going to be no presence along the way. But notice there's going to be no presence in the, in the camp or in their midst. And this is what we see in verses 7 through 11 with what is called the tent of meeting. This is not the tabernacle because it has not been made yet. This is a foreshadowing of the tabernacle of what the tabernacle was supposed to do. And so notice in verse 7 how the tent of meeting is outside the camp. Moses really wants you to see that it's outside the camp. And when something's outside, you know what that means? It is cursed. When something's outside of paradise, it is cursed. When something's outside of the camp, it is cursed. That's why you go do your business outside the camp, because the camp itself was a holy place. And so we see Moses took his tent, this tent of meeting, pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. Again, the idea is how can a holy God dwell with an unholy people? How is this going to happen? How is this going to occur? And so his presence seems to be away from Israel, but there is some encouragement. I mean, the people can still go seek him. It's just outside the camp. He's just not in their midst. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord, they'd had to go outside the camp. So there is still this connection. There is still this uh, somewhat nearness, but it's not the same nearness uh, that it once was. And it's not the same nearness that Moses gets to enjoy. And it's not the same nearness that you and I get to enjoy. And so we see he, they go out and it's a lesson for them. Verse 8, they seek him away. It's meant to raise awareness for Israel. Uh, Israel. So it was whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle, of, a tabernacle that all the people rose and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. Kyle and Dalish, uh, Dalich say there were two reasons for this. In the first place, Moses desired thereby to lead the people to fuller recognition of their separation from their God. They needed to know it that their penitence might be deepened in consequence. But also in the second place, he wished to provide such means of intercourse with Jehovah as would not only awaken in the minds of the people a longing for the renewal of the covenant, but render the restoration of it possible. So there is a bit of a judgment, a bit of a punishment going on here, but there is some of Yahweh's goodness as well. Now, even in the Old Covenant, God is still good. Even in the Old Covenant, we see God's kindness and goodness. It's not as same as the New Covenant, but we see God is very gracious. The God slow to anchor and abounding in steadfast love. And so he's willing to dwell with them. And so, But the people watch in verse 9. We see God dwells with that cloud foreshadowing Exodus 40. And it came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. And all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshipped, each man in his tent door. And so they bow, they worship, they observe, so it provides some encouragement. Yahweh is still there. He's not in their midst. Will he dwell in their midst again? 
But then we see in verse 11 what it means. What it means to dwell with God face to face in his presence. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And he would return to the camp. But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. He stood guard while Moses spoke. And it's not as though Moses saw the actual essence of God. We'll talk about that more when we get to verses 18 through 23. But nonetheless, we see this intimacy. We see this familiarity. We see this nearness. Because where is blessedness? It is with God. It is dwelling with God. It is God dwelling with us. Even when we get to the idea of his glory, what is his glory? It is seeing God as he reveals himself to us. It is his goodness. It is his mercy that we could dwell with him. Gill says, not by angel, but he himself in person. Not by a dream or vision, but apparently in real visible appearance. Not in dark speeches, but in, clearly in plain words. Easy to be understood. Not by a voice from heaven at a distance, but mouth to mouth, being very near as when on the mount, and now at the door of the tabernacle. And we see Numbers 12 speaks about the blessedness and the uniqueness of Moses, that he would speak to God face to face in this way. This nearness, this familiarity, something that Israel does not have, but Moses does have it. And the implication or the way it explains it as a friend, that familiarity between Moses and Yahweh. And the people watched it. They saw it. And Moses would speak with him. Now, again, all of this highlights the predicament of mankind. All man born in sin is stubborn, stiff-necked, rebellious, wicked, add any other sort of adjective you want there. And the result is they're under his wrath because of what he has done. He is holy, man is vile. He is holy, man is unholy. It's a problem for Israel. It's a problem for man. And the purpose seems to be that points ahead to the Savior Christ is how can sinful man dwell with God? For the old covenant people, under the old covenant terms, the way they approached God concerning life in the land was by way of sacrifice. The only way to approach God, dear brethren, is by way of sacrifice. And then after that, we see with the holiness codes, the, the purity system was to highlight how man, how uh, Israel, sorry, was meant to walk with God. Now, thankfully, we have Christ Jesus, who's the once for all sacrifice, and through him we can approach unto God. And thankfully, we are washed in his blood and have the Holy Spirit that we might walk in his ways. You see, brethren, we walk with him because of his goodness, because of his mercy, and because he is pleased to dwell with us. He is pleased to dwell with man. He pardons us. But all of this, what we see in verses 1 through 11, is meant to instill humility in the people of God. Here's what our sin deserves, dear brethren. Here's what we once were. Our sin deserves separation from God. Our sin deserves to be without God forever because blessedness is with God, but we deserve to not have God. Henry says, note those whom God pardons must be made to know what their sin deserved and how miserable they would have been if they had been unpardoned, that God's mercy may be the more magnified. God is good. God forgives. And thankfully, because of Christ Jesus, there is a familiarity that we have with God. He is our father and we are his children. It has nothing to do with you has nothing to do with how wonderful you are or how wonderful you think you are. 
has everything to do with God's goodness, that he would dwell with us in the son taking on a human nature, that we get to dwell with him, that we get to speak to him, he speaks to us. That is a great gift here, brother. We have a greater sort of greater, greater familiarity than even Moses did in many ways because of Christ Jesus. We are a kingdom of priests, aren't we? We are an ado adopted sons, aren't we? And as such, we have the presence of God. We don't always feel it, but we have to be assured that God said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Whether you feel that or not, dear brethren, God will never leave you nor forsake you. So that's the predicament of mankind, but thankfully there is the presence of the Lord, and it is the favorable presence that we see in verses 12 through 23. And we see the presence proper in verses 12 through 17. So Moses comes again to mediate. He's already done some mediation. Uh, he did some in Exodus 32. Uh, he said, Lord, you brought these people up. Why should the Egyptians speak? You brought them out to harm them. He's appealing uh, to the goodness of God, and he does so again here. He says, Lord, we want you to go with us. Lord, go with us. God had said, I will not go with you because you're stiff-necked, but Moses, here he comes, and he mediates. He intercedes for the people. And so verse 12 says, And Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Who will it be? Who will be the one that goes with me? And he's going to highlight, he's going to say that it needs to be you who goes with us. And he says, but you have not let me know, yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. You have God, Moses is appealing to the words of God. God, you said you've been good. God, you said you know me by name. God, you said I found grace in your sight. Now may I find that grace once again? He is pleading based upon the promises of God. When you pray, brother, you know what you ought to pray? Based upon the promises of God. If you sinned against God, pray, Lord, please forgive me because your word says, if I confess my sins, you are faithful and just to forgive me and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. We pray God's words back to him. We pray his promises back to him when we're going through our predicaments and our trials and our struggles. And Moses is praying those very thoughts back to him. Will you help me? It's reminiscent of Exodus uh, chapter 3. Who is going to be the one to speak on my behalf? Who will be the one to go with us into that promised land? You have known me by name. Now, perhaps there is some allusion in John 10, maybe if it is just conceptual, but Jesus knows his sheep, doesn't he? He knows his sheep, and his sheep hear his voice. And his sheep who hear his voice know his name. One thing that's important to highlight to make that more significant is in the Greco-Roman world is they, um, shepherds didn't have enough money to have their own pens, most of them. So they all shared pens. The most amazing thing is that the sheep knew which one, they knew their master's voice. And Jesus knew who his sheep are, and he calls them by name, and they come out, and they come to him. God knows us. God knows his people. God is gracious to us, and Moses is pleading based upon that very thing. And so now, verse 13, Now, therefore, based upon your goodness, I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me your way, that I may know you, and that I may find grace in your sight. And consider this nation is your people. Don't just be good to me, but be good to me and the people whom you've brought out. And so he pleads, and God gives that assurance. Verse 14, 
And he said, my presence, my face, same word, my face will go with you, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And that rest is going to be in that land. It's certainly, we see that it's fulfilled in Joshua, but it's typical of the eternal land. It's typical of the everlasting rest that we have uh, in Christ Jesus, who strove and he entered into that rest, and we enter in through him. Because rest really is with God, isn't it? Resting is resting in the presence of God. We certainly can have a nap. We certainly can have a snooze. We can certainly take holidays. I'm not against any of those things. And God isn't against any of those things either. But the greatest place of rest is with God. The greatest place of rest is with Jesus. The greatest place of rest is when we gather as the saints. Even though we're tired and weary, we come and we can find rest in our Christ because he has promised to give us that rest. It is with him. It's in his presence. It's delighting uh, in our God. And Yahweh assures, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And then Moses uh, presses in further. He wants more uh, further, further implications of that presence. You need to go with us. And he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? How can we know unless you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are under the face of the earth. When they did the golden calf thing, they were acting like all the nations around them. And what does God say, especially for that second generation, when they enter into the land later on, do not be like the nations around you. Drive them out. Make sure they're dealt with because otherwise you're going to be just like the nations around you. And what happens? They don't drive them out. They become just like the nations around them. And eventually we got another golden calf with Jeroboam. We got another scenario, another golden calf incident. The people just never learn, do they? And so uh, certainly uh, God is saying here, or Moses is saying here, but yet let us be that separate people, that set apart people that we see in Exodus 19. Now we know the church of Christ is that set apart people. The people have been chosen, that holy race, that royal priesthood, that holy generation. The church is meant to be different than the world uh, around it because we are a different country. We're a heavenly country. Certainly we live in the world. We have jobs like people in the world that are not necessarily sinful, but we ought to shine as lights. But our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. We are a separated people. The church as an institution, as it functions, needs to be different. So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. A holy people. And Yahweh assures that as well. Verse 17. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken. For you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. How can you say there's no goodness and grace in the Old Testament? I mean, look at this. Golden calf and Yahweh talking about being gracious. And Moses even presses in then further. He wants to see the glory of God. Verse 18. Please show me your glory. Now, we know that Moses went up on Mount Sinai. We know that Moses is speaking to God in that intimate sense. But he wants to go further, doesn't he? And commentators are divided. What does he mean when he wants the glory of God? What does he mean when he wants this? Because he's already spoken to God in this way face to face. But Moses seems to be asking for something more. And as he asks for that more, that something that is more, Yahweh says, I cannot necessarily give that. I'm going to reveal myself to you in a way that only man 
uh, can have without dying. And it could be the case that Moses is asking, I wish to know the very essence of God. And man cannot know the essence of God, otherwise we'll explode, otherwise we'll die. Otherwise, no one can see the face of God in this way and live. He seems to be asking for something greater than, all, than what he already has received. Henry Ainsworth, one of the commentators during the Puritan era, he says, so Moses requested that the essence of God might be distinctly known in his heart and from the essence of other, from the essence of other things, that he might know the truth of his essence as it is. But God answered him, the knowledge of living man who is compounded of body and soul, hath no ability to apprehend the truth of this thing concerning his creator. We cannot know God in his essence because we are not God. And so we need God to reveal himself. And God is still good. He's still going to proclaim his name. He's still going to do this theophany, this sensible appearing to Moses but Moses cannot know Yahweh in his essence. But we do see the goodness of God. We see his glory in his goodness. God condescends to us. That is, we cannot know God in his essence, but God condescends to us and speaks to us in baby talk. Talking with the brothers beforehand about eternity. How can we understand eternity? We live in time. We have no idea what it means to be eternal. And so that's why the Bible speaks in time language to describe eternity. A day with the Lord is like, one day with the Lord is like a thousand. Who what is and was and is to come. It's talking about his eternity from everlasting to everlasting because the Bible is baby talk. The Bible is baby talk, brethren. We cannot fathom, we cannot comprehend God in his essence, but we, need, we can know him. We know him in his name as he's going to reveal that name, but we cannot know him in his essence. But we can still know that he is good. Verse 19, then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I will show you my glory, my kindness, my goodness, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. We're going to see this in Exodus 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And then Moses has to bow down because even that glimpse of God uh, is enough to f cause him to fear. And even, brethren, when we get to heaven, we're not going to see the essence of God. We're going to see God in the face of Christ. We're never going to be able to comprehend the mystery of who God is, the incomprehensibility of who God is. So we see his goodness. We see his mercy. I will have be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Paul quotes this in Romans chapter 9. If you ever throw in down with an Arminian, take them back to Exodus 33. Take them back to the golden calf scenario and say, how can man do anything good? Even with Jacob and Esau, we see uh, Jacob, he is, you know, duping his father. I know he receives the blessing, but he does it in a shady sort of way. Let's just be honest. How can man earn salvation? How is it that God looked down the corridors of time and said, this person, that person, they'll... No, the, uh, Romans 9 says, before the boys did any 
thing. It was God's purpose of election, not of works, but of him who calls. And what God is trying to say to Moses is, I will be merciful to whom I will be merciful. I am the sovereign Lord. And Paul picks that up when he says in verse 14 of Romans 9, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Then he goes on to talk about another incident in Exodus with Pharaoh. For this very purpose, I raised Pharaoh up, that I might show my power in you, Pharaoh, that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. God is sovereign. That is the point of Romans 9. God is free to save whom he will save, and God is free to show mercy upon whom he will show mercy. And thank the Lord that he does. Especially when you read verses 1 through 11 and chapter 32 of Exodus. Why would God save any of us? That is a great mystery, that God would save wretched people like you and I. We see his mercy. We see his kindness. His mercy is not dependent upon man. It is free in all of God. But as far as God in his essence, we do see his incomprehensibility. We've talked about that already, but we see that in verse 20. He said, you cannot see my face for no one shall see me and live. And so he did speak with Moses face to face, but again, that's describing that nearness. But you cannot see me in my full glory. You cannot see me in my essence. No one shall see me and live. God dwells in unapproachable light. First Timothy chapter six. And so Moses is going to need protection. Even when he sees just the glimpse of who Yahweh is, he's going to need some protection. And we see certainly the holiness of God throughout all of this. It should cause us to recognize the majesty of God and cause us to recognize how insignificant we are and how glorious and great our God is. But the Lord says, verse 21, the Lord said, here is a place by me and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock. God is going to cover him. God is going to protect him. He needs that protection even to see just this glimpse this revelation, this theophany, while I pass by. And I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Again, this is accommodating language again. Rather than seeing the front of God, the essence of God, he's going to see the back, and that back is meant to be a reflection. The idea has this idea of a reflection. It's not God's essence, but it is his reflected glory. Because if man saw God in his essence, no man shall see my face and live. We need to be protected in order to see God. Again, even when we see God, we will never know him in his essence. We needed one who veiled in flesh the Godhead see. We needed one to be like us, but one also to be God. And that is the blessed and wonderful mystery and the blessed and wonderful salvation that we have in Christ Jesus, that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, that God would dwell with us that the Son would dwell with us, that we might dwell with God. That is the main thing we need to take away, brethren. We see our wickedness, see the vile things that we have done, but we need to see the goodness of God, that God would dwell with us. Why does he redeem? Why is he gracious? Where is our ultimate hope and joy? It is dwelling with God. 
We dwell with him through Christ. We dwell with him now, and we shall dwell with him forever. Because, and the reason is because of Jesus. We'll close with John 1. And of course, we are going to allude back to Exodus 33 and 34. When we get to verses 14 and 18. But John 1, 14. The word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. They see the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, alluding both to Exodus 33 and to Exodus 34, highlighting that Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. The word is God. And the way in which you and I can dwell with God is because of the word. And then also similar in verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. The glory of God is seen in Jesus. You want to know God? You want to dwell with God? It is in Jesus. Believe upon him. Look to him and you shall be saved. If you have looked to him, if you've believed upon him, then know this, that you dwell with God. You know God. You are adopted as sons of the living God. And as we consider this, shouldn't it spur us on to pray all the more? <laughs> shouldn't it spur us on to worship all the more that God dwells with us? The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, let us pray. Our good God, we are thankful that you do dwell amongst us. We know that this is where our blessings lie. This is where eternal happiness and peace lies. It, it lies with you. And we know that you have perfect life in yourself and you did not need to create the world, but out of your sheer good pleasure, you did. And we are thankful that you made it. And we are sorry that we violated your law. And so we know that we do not deserve anything but eternal damnation. We do not deserve anything but separation from you. We do not deserve anything but to be outside the camp. But we are thankful that Christ was the one who was cursed outside the camp for us, that in him we might be in the camp, that we might dwell with you, that we might be a holy priesthood, that we might be that holy nation, that royal priesthood, that we might be a people of your own possession, and we're thankful that we have this because of the finished work of our Savior. Thank you that he is the word who tabernacled. Thank you that he is the one who reveals the glory of God. For we know that we cannot know you in your essence, but we are thankful we can know you as you reveal yourself. So we ask and pray that tonight would, would have been a time of encouragement for us that would spur us on to pray, spur us on to worship, spur us on to be in your word. For it is a great privilege to be called children of God and to be able to pray to you, to speak with you, and to read your word. We pray that we would appreciate that familiarity we have with you, and that we would grow the more and more closer to you each and every day of our lives, and we long for that fullness to come in where nothing shall hinder that very thing. And so thank you for all that you do. Be with us tonight by your spirit. Be with us as we go into the world uh, by your spirit. Help us to honor and glorify you in all that we do. Walk with us, never leave us, nor forsake us. And thank you that you love us and we have found favor, not because of anything good within us, but because of Christ Jesus.
We pray that you be glorified in all things, and we pray these things in the name of Christ.